You're listening to Diffuse Tap with Kenny Estes and Isla Creme. Today's episode features Jimmy Chamberlain, music tech CEO and investor, and also the co-founder drummer of a little-known band called the Smashing Pumpkins. He's one of the more intriguing backgrounds of anyone you'll ever meet, and he's going to talk about some of the fascinating developments in the entertainment world. Buckle up. Hello, everyone. Hope you met some interesting folks in that breakout room. So you know what is on tap today, because this is Diffuse Tap. We're going to ever so briefly talk about Diffuse and Diffuse Tap, the event you're in right now. Go meta with it. We're going to do about 15 minutes or so fireside chat with one Jimmy Chamberlain. And then we're going to do two more rounds of breakout rooms, kind of like what you just did. So it's an opportunity to uh, meet some new folks. Diffuse, uh, that is who we are and what we do. Our main product, the main thing we do is called Fund in a Box. So if you know anybody who has an interesting alternative investment strategy that thinks that it might be enough to turn into a investment fund vehicle, we're the folks to reach out to. So we'll help them with putting it all together, uh, launching, and then on an ongoing basis, we will act as the uh, day-to-day operations partner uh, for the life of the fund. So we are truly uh, selective and, and unique in what we do. One of the funds that is live is Wesley Ventures, which is an early stage B2B fintech fund. So that invests in companies whose customers are banks, insurance companies, asset managers, hedge funds, things like that. So if you know any startups that fit that bill, definitely shoot them our way. And another one that should be launching end of this month, potentially first week of May is Diffuse Digital 30, which is, as far as we know, the world's first digital asset index fund. Open-ended, so we are trying to become the vanguard for digital assets. Diffuse Taps are where you are right now. It's a lot of networking, like you just saw in the agenda, um, as well as some insights from an expert speaker we'll talk about in a second. And... There is a sister event called Deallocators, which is bi-weekly and invite only for people who are LPs in funds. So if you know anybody who's actively investing in funds, I think they would enjoy that. It's great networking and every week you have a different profile. It's a big day today. It is the one year anniversary. It is the cake day for Diffuse Tap itself. So exciting stuff. We would like to hear from you. We've heard a lot about partnerships and opportunities that have come across and have been created in these very breakout rooms. But please drop us an email and let us know about some of them. And if you do, we have a gift. Not for everybody, but for some of you, we'll give one person randomly. This is a box and inside of the box, we have our speaker mug. Jimmy, you're gonna get this regardless. Everybody else has a chance to get this fancy mug with diffuse tap because it's what's on tap. So send us your email, let us know some people, interesting people that you met along the way. Um, and we will uh, enter you into that raffle and pick one person, lucky person, to get a, a very cool mug. All right. Now that said, our speaker of the day is Jimmy Chamberlain. As you all well know, I'm terrible at introductions. So, Jimmy, you're probably muted. Um, do you want to do a brief intro on yourself and your rather unique background? My name is Jimmy Chamberlain. I'm uh, best known as the drummer for the Smashing Pumpkins, um, but also do a bit of tech investing uh, and a little participation as well. Um, I left the band in 29, 2009 uh, for the simple reason to be at home with my kids for a little more time. Um, I got interested in the tech space and through some friends, Kevin Willer, Stuart Larkins, um, started to dig deeper. Um, got uh, convinced that I could be a participant, uh, started going to investor pitches. And the next thing I know, I was CEO of a company called Live One, 
uh, for three years doing capital raises, had 24 employees, and, uh, and eventually went bankrupt. Um, <laughs> so ran the whole uh, ran the whole gamut, um, but loved loved the space. Um, I will say, you know, the company uh, was flourishing. Our 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 core product was called Crowd Surfing. It was a bolt-on uh, chat solution for content providers um, that provided, uh, in addition to chat uh, chat boxes. Um, uh, e-commerce capabilities, data scraping on the back end, uh, associative advertising in the widget. Um, the biggest problem with the company was uh, we had a robust technology that was built for HTML and we kind of missed the boat uh, going into mobile. And my decision, rather than to keep raising money and trying to chase that, um, we decided to shutter the company and two of the co-founders went on and did indeed create a mobile solution along the same lines. Um, it's called Streamlayer. And at that point, I was getting back in the band, so it made sense to just kind of just kind of move on. I do have a consultancy called Blue Jay Strategies that continues to consult uh, and create connectivity for companies along those lines. Um, I've invested uh, in a couple companies. I've, I, I like to take a pretty hands-on approach. So now that I'm back in the band full time, I don't do a lot of tech investing. I do, however, get a lot of interesting companies across my desk um, that Kenny and I talk about quite a bit. Um, so it's good to be here. I'm excited to talk and answer some questions uh, to the best of my ability. That's great stuff. And uh, I, I hear rumors that there might be a new Pumpkins album coming out in the not to do some future. Yeah, so I just uh, I just got back from Nashville, recorded uh, 33 new songs for a three CD um, rock opera that we've written uh, due to COVID. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we've uh, we've tried to maximize as much of our time as we as we can um, while we're not touring. And we figured, you know, we're never maybe never going to have uh, 12 months of clean runway to really try to work on something as, uh, as uh, ambitious as this. So we kind of rolled up our sleeves and just uh, started working and ended up with 33 songs, uh, a narrative story that accompanies it. And we're just, uh, we just finished the drums and we've got about six more months of work to do before it's done. That's great. And for the fireside chat, um, my, uh, my partner and basically superior in every way is Isla Krem. Um, and so we'll kind of tag team a few questions your way. And guys, don't forget, you can chuck uh, questions in the chat and we'll pick them up. Isla, do you want to take it away? First question, and this kind of comes back to something that we're all trying to put a finger on. What is uh, music as an asset class? How do we define it? How do you define it? Well, I think, you know, as digital came online, um, the opportunities to monetize music um, started to be a lot more varied. Um, I think as we're seeing music move into more of, you know, these kind of bundled type of ecosystems where publishing catalogs are being bought uh, by investment groups, um, you know, those things are getting uh, valued in, in ways that are, you know, predicated on market opportunities that, that weren't there 10 years ago. So I think as you see, you know, the value of music is increasing exponentially, mostly predicated on the various opportunities to monetize that music that are that are coming through digital. And with that, I mean, you're seeing a whole, a whole nother subset of companies coming around that are monetizing or attempting to monetize the peripheral uh, of those set catalogs. Um, you know, companies like Fanvestor that are allowing uh, people to invest in celebrities or simple, uh, simple works of art, like people could invest. If we, were, if we were a part of Fanvestor, they could invest in our next album and potentially receive, 
you know, perks for touring or actual dividend revenue. I mean, I think you're seeing, you know, a real, a real market for uh, people's bodies of work. Companies like Hypnosis, Columbia, UMG are dipping their toe in the water and going and, 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 and rolling up these catalogs because they know the lifetime of these catalogs are going to be, are going to be huge as more monetization opportunities come online. Is that good or bad for the industry overall, where you start seeing these people that are very much coming in and buying catalogs for profit? Like these very clearly are investment funds. The, uh, is, is there a loss of soul for the music catalog or what are your thoughts there? I mean, I think from an artistic standpoint, it really depends on where you're at in your life cycle. I think if you've got 20 years of creativity in front of you, then, you know, you don't, you may not want to put a price on that. But if you're Bob Dylan or you're Neil Young or Elton John, and, you know, you know that, you know, maybe not your best years are behind you, you just don't have the creative juices flowing anymore, or you don't have the energy to create those kind of monumental albums anymore. And, you know, you've got a limited amount of, of years in front of you, then a cash out, you know, probably makes a lot more sense. And, and with that, I mean, companies like hypnosis and, and some of these uh, peripheral non-record company institutions that are buying these catalogs, you know, they're, they're looking at the market very differently than a record company would look at it. They're looking at it purely from a business standpoint and looking at the opportunities purely from a number standpoint where, you know, a label like Columbia or, or CBS or Sony or UMG, you know, they've got to be hyper aware of the intrinsics in and around the sale of said artwork, right? Because they have a reputation that's built on, you know, this kind of quasi integrity, but any companies like hypnosis, they're just trying to maximize dollars. And as they look at the market and it becomes more plug and play with digital marketing, uh, peripheral companies that can come on and assist in and assist in, in narrow lanes to provide value. I think they, they see the long tail of the value of these publishing catalogs in a way that the record companies, because of the anachronistic nature of their businesses don't have a view on. One of the questions that are coming up in, in the chat, and, and we've spoken about this before, NFTs, is that, a, is that a good way for musicians these days to approach selling a stake in the IP that they own? Or what is your thinking around the NFT? Hype or? Bubble. bubble. <laughs> Call it a bubble. Frothy. It's frothy right now. <laughs> I think, yeah, it's, it's hard to say. It's early days, you know, it's early days with NFTs. And certainly, you know, with, with pieces of art selling for 30 million plus, you know, it's hard to argue uh, that there is a value and there is a market there. Uh, how that market sustains itself and how those prices sustain themselves remains to be seen. But I am seeing um, there's a company, Autograph.io, that's just launching um, with Tom Brady and a bunch of other celebs and some pretty high-powered uh, industry people that are look, taking a serious look and a serious swing at the NFT market. Um, you know, it's a lot like crypto, right? When crypto stabilizes, you start to see the Goldman's and the Morgan's coming in uh, to a stable market. And I think you'll see the same thing with, with NFTs as the market stabilizes and becomes real and legitimizes itself through staying power and the stabilization of, of price offering. I think, you know, it'll get frothy. I think right now it's still extremely speculative. Uh, for me as an artist, you know, I've got a I've got a basement potentially worth, you know, 
60, $70 million now. <laughs> so for me, it's exciting. I mean, if I've got, you know, we've got as a, as a band, we've got every song we've ever recorded, handwritten lyrics, every ticket we've ever sold, a copy, laminates, those types of things. I mean, we have tons and tons of, you know, NFT type assets that we could, that we could market. We're just kind of waiting for the right opportunity and waiting for it to, to, to further legitimize before we kind of jump in. But yeah, I think it's, it's exciting. And I think it's really, you know, it, it seems like the whole market is moving away from the, the kind of quasi gold standard of value and really getting into this agreed upon value that's really, um, that's really more applicable to a free market where everybody, you know, the price is what the price is agreed to be the price, right? So I think that's an exciting time, especially with what's going on with decentralization, DeFi, those types of things. I think, you know, NFTs are kind of, they're kind of the, you know, the natural event that happens when you have legitimate decentralization, you get opportunities like NFTs that present themselves. And whether it all stays here, decentralization stays and NFTs stay legitimate, it's really up to, you know, a ton of different factors, regulation, those types of things, how it's taxed, what it's classified as a security and asset, you know, blah, blah, blah. I think there's a lot of hanging chads that need to be reconciled before this market becomes, at least in my, from my viewpoint, uh, somewhat legitimate. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, pick up another one here from the, um, the chat from Michael. Uh, he's asking about uh, pumpkins touring, but a related thing, and this is the 800 pound gorilla in the room, which is COVID and how it's affected how you're recording, how you're making, how you're touring. Um, you kind of gave us some color on how this album that you're working on now recorded and how that's different than how you've done it in the past. Do maybe we we'll talk a little bit about that process and then also talk to touring, what it looks like now, what you expect to change in the near future? Yeah, sure. So, you know, Again, this is this is kind of, you know, this is representative of where the market has gone as a whole, right? I mean, it's our Zoom call, the way we meet now, it's not too dissimilar from the way we've been recording. We've got two guitar players that live in LA. I live in Riverwoods, Billy lives in Highland Park, so him and I are able to collaborate in person quite a bit. But for this record, for instance, um, you know, him and I got together, uh, he wrote the body of the songs. I came and we arranged them. We created templates. I was able to take those templates home to my studio, work on drum parts, uh, work on arrangements for 33 songs, and then, you know, send him clips. He could send me back clips. It was largely done digitally until we met in Nashville and recorded the drums analog uh, as a, as a team. And now that the drums are recorded, he's taken them back to his studio He's, he's putting on his instrumentation. We've sent the tracks out to LA. James and Jeff are putting on their instrumentation. Uh, when it's all done and we all agree that it's done, done, you know, we'll start to sing, uh, we'll start to put lyrics on, but it's, it's a very modular process. Um, it's not like the old days, you know, in 1995, when we were doing Melancholy, we had a, we had a space on Elston, for many years, that was our studio, Pumpkinland, and we would get in a room and play for 12, 13 hours a day working on these songs until we got to the point where the performances were as good as they were going to get. And then we would roll tape and, and record the band. 
um, with the hope, you know, that the drums would be, the drums would be a good take and then we would go and add the instrumentation later, but it would all be done in person where you're looking, where you're looking at faces. Um, so, so it's, it's, it's changed drastically, whether, whether it's better or worse, it's, it's better in some ways in that, you know, from a creative standpoint, you're really allowed the freedom to kind of create on your own without having to look at somebody's face for a reaction when you play something, <laughs> which is always, uh, which can be a double-edged sword. Uh, and, you know, from a time standpoint, you can go and I can go and I like to play in the morning, right? So I'm generally working in my studio from 8 a.m. till about 2, 2 p.m. or 3 p.m. Whereas when I had to have the band to record, some of these guys don't even get out of bed till 10 o'clock. So we wouldn't start playing till noon and then we wouldn't be done till midnight. Right. So, you know, at least, you know, now I'm able to keep my kind of techie bankers hours uh, with, with, within the process, which is great for me because I'm, I'm very much an early riser and like to get to bed uh, relatively early. So, um, but again, you know, this, this create, you know, pro tools and the other technologies that we use, create this kind of ultra tweakable landscape, which is again, a double-edged sword. Back in the old days, when we record, we record to tape and you'd have to be okay with the performance and that would be the performance you would live with. So when you hear Tonight Tonight or Bullet with Butterfly Wings or Chair of Rock or any of those songs that were recorded in the 90s, you're hearing that four to five minute moment in time. Whereas if you were hearing anything recorded post 2015, you're hearing parts of a moment in time, but maybe something has been moved around or tweaked or, 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 or uh, rearranged or chopped up or, you know, there's, there's opportunities to kind of, uh, to kind of contaminate their performance, which for me as a, as a musician kind of gets into this kind of murky, is it real or is it not real? Or what's the emotional congruity, congruity of something like that? I could go on and on, obviously. And yeah, thank you for sharing that. We, we love getting a peek into your into your schedule. Now people are going to try optimizing for your banker musician schedule, so that's great. Um, last question before we hop into breakout rooms. Somebody asked about a debt capital um, and non-delegative financing for alternative or as an alternative for musicians. Um, how do you how do how do musicians usually get financed in the early days, and um, and how does that look that you know, do they take equity? Do they take debt on? Do they just use a credit card? What's their, what's the strategy these days? Yeah. So are you asking like, what's the difference in how you raise capital for a recording project? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. For, especially um, for musicians these days as a kind yes. of might contrast to previously. Well, well, so in the old days, you know, recording costs were, were very, were very high, right? So, so, so to go and do a project like Melancholy in 1995, our budget was $1 million for the whole project and we ran over budget by 50%. So we ended up spending $1.5 million. That came from the record company. Um, the recoupment of that is predicated on record sales, right? And, that's, and, 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 the, and the, the rate of return is predicated on your deal. So based on uh, the success of the, of the band, you have the ability to kind of go in and renegotiate your deal and renegotiate your deal. But the standard deal back then used to be about a dollar 80 for, so 18 cents on the dollar is what you would make. So if you, if you made a million, if you borrowed a million dollars from the record company, you would pay that back 18 cents for every dollar was sold. So the CD, if a CD was $10, you're paying back 
$1.80 for every CD sold until you pay the million dollars back and then you start to get into your own royalties. Um, these days with Pro Tools and, and the fact that, you know, things have become more affordable, we generally just self-fund. We just, we just, we, we provide our own. I mean, we've been a band for 33 years, so we're, we're very flush with cash. We have, we have, uh, it's, it's easy for us to just pay and then go sell the finished product to a distribution company or a record company with some, <clears throat> some deal that's far and above the dollar 80 for every $10 <clears throat> that we used to get since the recording costs have already been covered. We recoup very fast. Um, so yeah, in the old days, that's why there was only 10 or 12 bands. Anybody's old enough to remember AM radio. There was only, you know, if you put the AM radio on, there was only 15 to 20 artists that would play because it was so prohibitively expensive to record back then. Only very few people could really afford the professional recording uh, capabilities. Whereas today, you know, artists like, like Lord, uh, who've kind of, who kind of came out of nowhere, recorded these great records in their bedrooms because of the technology that's available. I mean, the, the costs for recording have gone down probably 90, 95%, um, you know, which is again, another double-edged sword. You could argue that that mechanism for getting signed to a record label and having somebody fund and believe in you to that extent was a kind of was a kind of gatekeeper method to assure that there was high quality although you know a lot of the stuff on the radio would argue against that um but uh but yeah the costs have come down significantly it's allowed uh a lot of creatives to get involved a lot of people that norm in a, in, a, in the past environment would have never seen the light of day now you're seeing uh, people who are existing purely on their talent and, and purely on the fact that they're either really good songwriters or really good marketers. That's great. And we do find people start to, to lose interest in about 15 minutes. We like to break it up at the breakout rooms. But in between breakout rooms, um, we are going to have an opportunity to ask another question or two to Jimmy. So feel free to drop it in the chat. Hello, everyone. Oh. So I'm going to pick up another question from the um, audience. And Jimmy, you are muted again uh, because it's no, I'm not. I just unmuted. Bowie Bonds. Is this something you know anything about? Uh, David Bowie apparently did some securitization play where his newer albums he secure he kind of put some debt financing on to buy back some of his early stuff. Is this something you're familiar with? This is Bowie Bond. Yeah. So David Bowie. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that was something that came out, uh, I believe, in the late 80s, uh, early 90s, where Bowie was actually uh, allowing people to invest in his uh, in his career trajectory moving forward. Uh, I know they did. I know they did trade uh, for quite some time. I don't really know where they ended up. I remember it was it was a novel concept that we were all kind of looking at. Um, and there is a company God, I just got something across my desk. There is a company. Uh, I just got something, some deck that was saying this guy was going to modernize the Bowie bond, uh, and make it and make it kind of a tangible thing for, for modern organizations. But, but again, I think, um, I think the market is already moving in that direction. I think there's, there's a, there's a company Fanvestor that I got pitched a few months ago that's allowing individuals and companies to invest in uh, partial or holistic uh, endeavors by either actors, artists, sports celebrities. Um, there's another company called uh, Music Fox, which is really, you would love these guys, Kenny, because they're a bunch of fintech guys um, who have really put together an, a marketing algo 
um, to really support uh, musical endeavors, uh, releases of albums, tours, that type of thing. Um, they're they're the type they're the type of company that I was talking about before, where they're going to create and supercharge these kind of catalog opportunities, right? So if you if you think of a company like Music Fox that has peripheral peripheral plug and play marketing opportunities that can supercharge the economic performance of one track or or, or or an endeavor by an artist and you attach it to a catalog like hypnosis then you're actually you're, you can extrapolate out the increase in value if if say hypnosis is sold an elton john song or they've sold uh, uh a neil young song to uh to a big marketer like say cadillac or or gm this is the type of company that can go in and create visibility around that track to make the ad campaign even more efficacious. I think that's the type of open source, um, the open source uh, peripheral economic opportunities that are going to surround these bigger uh, land grabs uh, of assets in, in the music space. And I think that's where it starts to get really super interesting because to our talk before, it does start to create this kind of quasi decentralized environment um, where, where, you know, it's, there's, there's, there's no, there's no one overarching economic tenant. It's really predicated on all of these moving cogs, more like a blockchain would be. That's really interesting. And you touch on a good point there, which is I, I've, for whatever reason, I've been involved in spinning up a lot of exchanges or marketplaces. And that information is always the stumbling block. It's never the technology, the understanding of what's going on with the assets so people can actually make informed buy or sell decisions. That's the hard part. All right, we're going to do one more round of breakout rooms and then uh, should have time for one more question to our good man, Jimmy. And uh, then we will wrap right on time. So, Ms. Krem, are you ready with breakout rooms? I love the last breakout room, by the way. I gotta get, I've got to get a bunch of email addresses from you after this. We can arrange that. And Isla, you're muted. Now I'm unmuted. Okay, beautiful. So the next question is, what effect will streaming have on the music industry in the next three years? Seeing what it's done to us already in the last three years and what does the future look like with streaming? Pop you into rooms. We'll make it a little bit of a shorter one and we'll bring you back just a couple of minutes before the hour. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Hope you had some good conversations. We're going to do one more question. Um, and this one, I'm trying to read it while speaking, so this is going to go terribly. And Jimmy, just a reminder, you probably unmute again. Um, so artist compensation. So th there's a topic here. On the one side, you have Clyde Stubblefield. These are names I know nothing about, so hopefully you do. Uh, he's a very sample drummer with no real money coming back to him. This is how he put it together versus kind of YouTube artists who are very directly monetizing and kind of cutting out the middlemen. Where do you see kind of that compensation for musicians? How has that changed since you started? Is it for the better? Is it for the worse? What are your thoughts there? Yeah. So, so yeah, Clyde, Clyde Stubblefield is actually a friend of mine. Um, and I knew Clyde when he was living in Madison and met him when we were recording our Gish record in 1988 and, obviously a fantastic drummer. Uh, Kenny played with James Brown, was in, you know, the, the famous James Brown band. Um, the Funky Drummer Beat is his, uh, he owns that. It was sampled by everybody from uh, Run DMC to, to NWA to Public Enemy. And Clyde never received a penny of, because he didn't have songwriting credit on the song, Funky Drummer. Uh, James Brown had the songwriting credit, so James Brown got the got the got the publishing credit for that for that sample. Um, but again, I mean, this goes back to you know historically, music 
uh, and the music business in general has been the kind of playground for these kind of, you know, junior business people who didn't understand or don't understand their, their, their own market. Um, I think, you know, as, as, as the business has evolved and really, you know, in the, in the, in the late nineties and early two thousands, we really saw the business start to flip with Nap with, with, with Napster coming online and everything going to digital. It really, it really went from the music business to the business music. And that's when everybody started to, at least, at least those that were trying to make this uh, a vocation, they started to examine and realize the uh, economics that were taking place. And digital allowed us to kind of extrapolate out where the, where the real value in these, in these <clears throat> pieces of content were. And I think you'll see with this YouTube generation, they're simply there's they're simply more uh, digitally aware. They live in that world. They understand the mechanics of how financing and economics work uh, much more than somebody who was writing songs and performing at the whiskey in you know 1975 does. Um, you know back then you know even in the 90s. I mean we would sell seven million CDs and we would make a boatload of money and then the sales would kind of trickle off. Now with streaming, you know, we've got every time somebody listens to a pumpkin record, they're essentially buying, rebuying a piece of that album. So we're getting continuous royalty uh, from those from those big songs that we've we've written and performed on over the years. Um, for us, you know, and it's always kind of been this way. An awareness of the business and the economics has always been necessary to sustain yourself in this in this industry because it's so easy to have a storied career and not make any money. And it's really, this bothers a lot of people. Uh, but I, but I always think, you know, as a business guy, it's incumbent on us to understand the business that we're participating in. And, and before we can go back and complain that we didn't get paid. And I mean, I, and, and I'm speaking from somebody who knows know, knew and loved Clyde and learned so much from him and, and knew what a giving person he was and, and performed with him. But again, back in those days, and even in the early days of me as a performing musician, it was just kind of gig to gig, go to play, get paid, move to the next gig. We weren't really worrying about like what the heck was going on. But in the not, you know, in the early nineties, when stuff started to get real for the pumpkins, we made a point to all read. There's a book called This Business of Music that really spells out everything from publishing to mechanical royalties to physical royalties to breakage to all of the things that could possibly impact the economics of a career in the music industry. We all read that book. So we all had a cogent understanding of the business we were participating in. And it allowed us to go and negotiate and renegotiate these lucrative contracts. Um, I was telling uh, my friends in the breakout room before you know, in 2005, we re renegotiated our streaming deal with Virgin while they were waiting for the CD to come back. We went and negotiated for a super high streaming royalty rate before there was any Spotify or any Amazon music. And that has served us extremely well uh, to this day because we have an extremely high uh, royalty participation amongst streaming. But, you know, like anything, if you're if you're investing in tech or you're investing in a company and you don't understand that company and then you complain that you lost all your money. Well, that's not really anybody's fault, but your own. It is incumbent on each individual to understand the business they're participating in. And, you know, with with Clyde, I think there's a 
there was nothing he was going to ever be able to do about that, um, which was unfortunate. And I think even if he would have played on, say, a modern record and didn't write the song and his drum part got sampled, he may, may not get paid for that. Um, for me, my drums have been sampled by, uh, by Depeche Mode, by House of Pain, uh, a bunch of other bands have used uh, my drums and I've, I've always gotten paid because I'm, because I'm a royalty participant and an owner of the copyright. So, you know, James Brown ran his business much differently than the Pumpkins did. I think the band rode in vans and James flew on a private jet. So it was like, you kind of, you kind of knew what you were going to get back then as far as like what the economic arrangement was, you know, for us, well, we had a jet. I mean, we all rode on the jet. We didn't make, you know, sorry, you can't ride on the jet, (laughs) but, uh, but yeah, again, I mean, I, I, I think it's unfortunate and certainly in light of the money that was made on that drum groove, Clyde should have gotten some, somebody that somebody that made a boatload of money on that drum groove should have ponied up and paid that gentleman, even outside of the, even outside of the conventional business arrangements that were uh, attached to that particular composition. I love that. That's a good life lesson. If you're going to go into a business, learn the business. Like I said, it seems so like blatantly obvious, but also sometimes a little bit hard. Um, we are a little bit past, so we're going to wrap it up now. Um, just as a reminder, Jimmy, you got your, your mugs going to be in the mail soon. But everybody else, if you want a chance to win a mug, send us a testimonial. We want to hear all the great stories. And then next week, oh my goodness, uh, Data First, ESG Investments. We're going to have um, a lady who is uh, very is sitting inside of a bank and spending a lot of time trying to create ESG metrics uh, that have a significant impact on the world. So, Isla, did I touch on everything before we say Absolutely. thanks? Absolutely. Yep, all sorted. And you all have received just an email right now with the link to participant list and uh, the spreadsheet to voluntarily add your email address. And then you have the WhatsApp link there as well. Uh, see right. you guys next week. Jimmy, thank you so much for your time. Um, really, really interesting uh, perspective and background. So thanks for sharing. And would love to get uh, some email addresses of some of the uh, people that had some great breakout rooms and really, really want to uh, want to follow up with a, with a few folks. Let us know the names. We'll put you in touch. All right. And thanks everybody else for coming and have yourself a great week. And we'll see you uh, same time, same bat channel next week. Right, see you. Happy birthday, guys. Uh, thank you. You've been listening to Diffuse Tap with Isla Krem and Kenny Estes. If you enjoyed these conversations, join us for the live version every Wednesday-ish at 10 a.m. Central. In addition to the fireside chat, the live event features three rounds of networking in small groups with alternative fund GPs, LPs, and supporters from around the world. Log on to www.diffusefunds.com to register yourself now.